0: Hi Page to the Limit listeners. We're taking a little break from new episodes to build up our guest queue and welcome a new team member. We'll be back in November with more great content just for you. In the meantime, we have two episodes we're rerunning in October. Up first, our hypercare episode with the folks from the New York Times. Since we're approaching holiday rush time, we thought this one might be helpful for new listeners. Our second October episode is by far the most popular, The On-Call Nightmares with Jay Gordon. Join us in the PagerDuty forums at community.pagerduty.com and share your experiences with on call horrors and spooky infrastructure. And we'll talk to you again in November with some really great guests.
1: to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software and production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Quintessence, or Quintessence Ox on Twitter. Today we're going to be discussing hypercare. Hypercare in this context is the state of elevated support that is required to maintain system availability and performance during episodes of expected surges in traffic. We are joined today by our guest panel from the New York Times, Megan Arala, who is the lead software engineer and election readiness technical lead, Alexandra Shaheen, program manager and election readiness program lead, and Vanessa Wan, technical product manager and election readiness emeritus. Thank you all for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you. As our first order of business, can you just each tell us a little bit about what situations warrant hypercare at the New York Times?
0: So at the New York Times, we always have some major temporal events that we want to prep for. So things like Olympics or Supreme Court hearings. I would say overall the, the elections, especially when it is a presidential elections, those are critical events for us where we really implement hypercare. They're pretty much like our Super Bowl, Super Bowl, and they tend to be really large drivers of traffic to our site. We've always seen steady increases of traffic from 2016 to 2018 to now. Elections in general are always going to be major events for us to practice hypercare.
1: Gotcha. Thank you so much. And kind of piggybacking off of that, what are some myths that you encounter when you're implementing hypercare?
0: To start off, there's a couple things that come to mind. The first one is that we know exactly what we're prepping for, um, particularly in terms of what could happen in terms of the scenario or traffic level. It's frequently getting asked from teams, what is that level of traffic? And yeah, if we knew, I think we would be in a much different scenario because you know these things are impossible to predict. And especially with this year where we were not just dealing with an election night. We were really looking at more of an election week. In addition to also dealing with the pandemic, um, this presented a lot of unknowns and things that just could play out. So the fact is like, you really have to be ready for all of them. And I'd say also particularly with this year, we always traditionally had folks on site. We would have these really large rooms, kind of like war rooms, where people would come together in person to make sure we were monitoring the site. And this really, really debunked that myth that you had to be on site. Obviously, because of circumstances with the pandemic, we had to really think differently about event support. Um, and we were able to optimize for remote situation. And I think this actually worked more to our benefit.
1: Gotcha. And Megan and Sandra, what, what do you think about myths that you've encountered?
2: A myth that we encountered is that you don't really need a long code freeze to be successful. When looking at how to regulate code practices in a hypercare situation, past practices advocate for a long code freeze and we didn't agree with this in that we felt that it was important for system leads to have autonomy and own their risk. Additionally, we felt as though long freezes promoted other types of risk. We therefore elected to restrict deploys to production for a shorter amount of time, specifically one day, than we had instituted in the past. And this really worked well for us because it let system owners deploy code and not be stuck in this weird situation that they have piles of piles of code in the backlog until we lifted that code freeze.
3: Yeah, Uh, I would say another myth is that it's easy to get resilience work prioritized and folks excited to work on it. The first phase of the election readiness project was an assessment phase where we looked for vulnerabilities within our tech stack. People have worked hard on these systems for years now, and we were tasked with providing input on how these systems could be improved. Sometimes, identified resilience opportunities are not always in line with the work the team has planned on doing in a given year, and we interrupted a few roadmaps in ways that weren't always celebrated. That said, the work that we did was worthwhile. Additionally, business continuity projects are not always exciting. There's a good chance that what you build is not often, if ever, used, so Building something for a just-in-case scenario isn't always as exciting as building a feature that will be used every day. And that's what made this project a little more challenging than
1: others. That makes sense. Thank you all so much. So New York Times has been around for a while. Elections have been around for a while, but how long have you specifically been doing hypercare preparedness?
0: I'd say we've always done some version of hypercare to prep for elections, but I would say that it really where I've been involved and I've seen even more of an effort is really starting in 2016 and then with midterms 2018 as well, just given the political landscape, normally we wouldn't be needing to put in that kind of prep for an elections. But again, we were expecting 2018 to have record traffic, in which it did. I think that this year was like the biggest effort we had. It really intensified with 2020, just because our digital subscribers have just been growing so much. And given already we were seeing a lot of traffic with the pandemic and there's a lot of excitement around the election overall. So this I think was really, you know, Megan and Alex could really speak to this about, we just put in a lot of effort for 2020 that normally we might not have been putting in. Like this year was also the first time we really looked at it differently. Normally we would just look at some systems and do some prep. This project was about over a year. And we really started not by looking first at our systems, but we actually looked at what were the business workflows or I think in PagerDuty you can refer to them as business services. And we really started that conversation of what are the things that our business and our readers and our newsroom cares about the most. And we actually tiered them according to criticality. And then we looked at the systems afterwards. And that really provided a foundation for not just how we wanted to look at 2020, but really how we want to look at our, our user experiences and our systems going forward.
1: Gotcha. And that makes sense. So can you tell us a little about some of the pain points you've experienced over time as you've been iterating over these processes? Yeah, gaining visibility
3: and understanding of all the technology teams within the times was really tough. Uh, This is a big technology ecosystem. Generally, the three of us are situated within the umbrella of product engineering. However, we needed to build relationships with other technology factions within the times, including print technology and interactive news, We tried to bridge the gap and communicate between these groups as transparently as possible throughout this entire project. One example of this were the UX alignment meetings that we pioneered with this election readiness project. These meetings were intended to get multiple groups, interactive news, growth, brand, and just the general technology group on board with one another's plans for site UX for major election events. These transparent meetings enabled all of technology to see the UX plans of these disparate groups and form a cohesive understanding of what our site would look like on Super Tuesday and the general election.
0: Yeah, a quintessence to like really build on what Megan said, this was a really big effort, and I would say, you know, Alex did a lot of work to really make sure that this was not about, you know, critiquing a design but really making sure that anybody working on elections could be able to understand what our expected user experiences were and ask questions more about like, Hey, if this doesn't work, what is acceptable? And really getting everybody just really kind of understanding what, what to expect um, and really being open and transparent. I think this is something that even though New York times is we're a large company, um and we have so many different teams but i think this is really something a lesson that any size company should be able to do is just kind of having that like dress rehearsal and understanding
2: what to expect yeah so one thing that was really important with the election was making sure our site won't go down Um, and we didn't know, yeah, (laughs) yeah, Yeah.
0: I think my mom is going to listen to this and that's usually sometimes how I have to explain my job.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the problem with this election is we didn't know how much traffic we were going to get. All we had to do was guess how much traffic we were going to get. And the way we had to prep ourselves to that was doing stress testing with like multiple applications. this is like 10 or more applications doing simultaneously stress testing. And this was something new in the organization. We've never done this before. And it was fairly difficult because there was an actual configuration of the technology to apply the artificial load, as well as inventing a process for doing so at scale. And we had to advocate for the numbers we were shooting for. And these were insanely large numbers and many folks doubted these numbers. Like in the end, the numbers we projected actually happened on election night, which was great. It was amazing. (laughs) But we needed to negotiate with product and business to get permission to break production whenever we do this. And we overcame this hurdle where people like, are you sure that we're gonna reach this threshold? We overcame it by looking at historical data, like how did we do last time and what should we project? And we really told everybody why, how and why we got these numbers. We also did like buy-ins from management that we needed their help to let other people know why we have or we predicted these numbers. Yeah, I think there's also,
0: there's a big lesson because some folks may not be as familiar with stress testing versus typical load, but especially when you're covering major news events and news can happen at any time to be able to conduct a stress test where you are saying, we actually want to break things because we want to understand where the vulnerabilities are. And then also on the other side, you want to see how people react when things go wrong because things are going to always go wrong. Um, It is a large, it is a really large trust exercise with everyone in the organization because it can be a really scary thing. Um, And there was definitely some points during the year when we were stress testing that we had a lot of major news events. Um, So this was, again, something that I think really goes to the credit of, you know, Alex and Megan. And I just remember being in a room and really explaining that we were going to do this. And then also doing these things while everyone was working remotely was yet another hurdle.
3: For sure. There's nothing like applying artificial load to a website while everyone is on a hangout together remotely and just
1: hoping it all goes okay. But it did. That's awesome. I'm glad it went okay because I know I had your map queued up just to see (laughs) if it's going to (laughs) happen.
0: A lot of refreshes there.
3: Yeah,
1: right? (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about how you're currently implementing hypercare?
3: So the New York Times has a sound incident management process that we rely on day-to-day. Our business is breaking news, and this process does us well. However, for a major event like the general election, we need to do a bit more in terms of hypercare. So we institute war rooms. This year, we did virtual war rooms. Um, we engage our vendors and let them know of what we're expecting and form the appropriate relationships as needed. We also look at... Uh, communication forums and how we can outwardly communicate to a broad range of folks as needed for this event preparation. We send communications over via Slack. We send emails. We say things. Um, It's important to grab everyone um, where you can reach them. And we make sure that we, on the night of, have our eyes on glass and fast collaboration should we need to have fast collaboration. This is not something we generally need, hypercare, in our day-to-day. But when you have traffic levels like this and an event that is of critical business and reputational importance, we absolutely need to institute hypercare. So we also knew ahead of time that this level of hypercare was not sustainable if the race weren't called on Election Day or the day after. Post-November 4th, we adjusted our processes so that heightened support was still provided, but with less pressure on those doing it. We didn't have everyone sit on a hangout in perpetuity, instead mandating that each system not only just have one engineer on call, but two, so that if we saw an incident, two people can jump on it as quickly as possible. We also instituted deployment windows where we enabled code to be deployed versus having freezes or other restrictions. These worked well for us.
2: Yeah, um, just to add to that, we're not always in hypercare because it's it's impossible to have a hundred engineers and hang out like for twenty four hours or more. We only do this when there's like a big event. We can't possibly engage in these. Practices long, long-term as they are costly and draining, and in our day-to-day, we rely upon on our regular incident management process, which is using page of duty, pages like and if there's an incident that is happening.
0: Yeah, I think in addition to all the event coverage and guidance, we also had a few different work streams to really make sure that we were ready in advance. So we had a core team that was available. And what that team did is they conducted, actually what they did, what, what Megan got to do with a bunch of other engineers is really um, working with the team to review you know, what their architecture was, identifying any risks, group vulnerabilities. So this team also led operational maturity assessments. And really what that was is so folks like Megan would work with the team and help them self-score how they were doing in certain operational practices. So kind of like, did they have a healthy on-call setup and things like that? Did they do alert analysis? Um, And that way that the team could all because again we're looking at a whole election season. So that way that team could make sure they weren't just prepared for the night of, but also for everything in between. And even with this election, we didn't just have a night of; we had more of an election week. Um, and then Alex and Megan talked a lot about just having these regular stress tests. And what's important to call out is after each stress test, having a learning review or kind of a blameless postmortem to make sure the team is actually identifying, you know, what they need to do to improve them, and really going through the results. Um, and we also did have some dedicated efforts around. Just building out particular resiliency where we you know found that we really wanted to protect our most efficient critical workflows. And then I would say, of course, then again, we also had that event coverage and all the guidance around deployment windows and what was needed to make sure we had all that um, immediate support
1: so we could jump onto things when they happened. Yeah, that sounds super resilient and that's amazing. And since you all have kind of been iterating over this over time, What would you suggest to people who are just starting to research and implement because they realized, oh, I actually am in a scenario where we're going to need elevated support? I think
0: leveraging this as a team building experience. Usually these types of events are what gets folks excited. It's an opportunity to come together. And sometimes this is the work, I like to call this as, you know, we are sometimes the stage crew. And sometimes you don't always get recognized for this type of work because your job is to make sure that people don't notice you. Um, so I think really getting people excited. And I think also making sure you're building a team around this, you know, not just having one person, but also building resilience into your team structure. I was really, when I kicked off 2020 effort, I was really excited to have someone like Megan join because Megan had a lot of solid engineering experience but I was excited to have her really be a lead in this effort because she was going to give a fresh perspective. And that was balanced with some other folks in the team that had worked on previous elections. And then Alex was someone that also came in new with a lot of energy and a lot of new ideas. So I think there's an opportunity to brand it as an effort to build unity and get people excited, but then also looking at how you're going to build that team out and even just building resiliency into how you Wonderful resiliency. That makes sense. I feel like there's a drinking game or a bingo.
1: <laughs> yeah, I get you.
3: I would say Vanessa's right. You need to form a cross-functional group with folks of diverse expertise and knowledge bases. We had a group of engineers from systems all around the org who created and conducted these initial assessments that we used to gauge readiness. With so many systems in play at the New York Times, it's critical to form a diverse team. And that really enabled us to be successful. We had folks that worked on DevOps. We had folks that worked in e-commerce. We had folks that worked in publishing. And from these diverse perspectives, we began to just form a a uniformed opinion of where things were at at the times.
0: Yeah, Alex, you also even have a scrum of scrums for all project managers, and they were too.
3: Absolutely. So, you know, it takes a village to get something like this done and you need in your immediate committee of those architecting your plans, a diverse and representative group that represents the village. So that was really important.
2: Yeah. I think before this project, I haven't worked with Alex. So that was, that was pretty good it's also like a good way to like meet new people in the organization. That's great. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's definitely an exciting part. It's it's a great, you know, I think you're right. (laughs) It was cool to work with each other. We had a fun team. It's a great opportunity, especially for someone to get exposure in an organization or someone just to really be able to meet new people.
1: Yeah, that sounds like it would be the case just by the cross section of skills that you all are listing just now. That sounds really important. And as you've kind of been moving along with all these initiatives, are there any gotchas you found that people might not know that they can kind of get ahead of when they're doing their first implementations?
3: I would say scope your work is number one. Those assessments and tiering that we did were crucial. Um, You are not going to be able to improve everything you need to take a good look at what systems are most important to your company's success and map your uh, investments appropriately there and guard scope with all that you've got as your management layers are going to want you to fix anything and everything as possible with something like election readiness we have a finite timeline the election's going to take place on November 3rd regardless of our readiness status So we need to structure our investment in the time that we have and make sure we're putting our efforts on the stuff that is truly critical to our company's success. And this is important to just retain the scope at all times and message this scope out so that the scope of this is clear to everyone and you're not being questioned on it.
2: Yeah. Another gotcha is just because a system hasn't failed in a long time doesn't mean it won't fail during the event. This has happened to us and we were lucky enough it happened like a few weeks before or a few months before and we were able to have a strategy around it. I think that's really important for not to be overconfident in a system that's been Relying for like two, three years because you never know. For some reason, it'll go down. Just think about it. Keep testing that system, or just have a, a strategy if that fails. It doesn't have to be implemented, but if you have it written down and think about a a solution if you if it were to happen.
0: Yeah, I think also too, it, not just in terms of your systems failing, but you know, fatigue is real. You know, this was a long election for us. And that really, you know, for those on call, for those managing elections, you really need to make sure people, you know, know when to stand down, know when to take a break. And I think, too, also when you're designing your processes and your event coverage guidance, being mindful also of the fact that people are going to be fatigued. So you want to make sure that you have um, and enforce things like having more than the same person cover a system for like two days Um, and letting folks know that it matters and that you actually are able to take a break if you've worked on an incident for a certain amount of time and that that's fine.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And thank you so much, all of you ladies, for just the wonderful conversation and all of the information you've been providing us today. And if you all Listeners of our podcast would like to learn more about election readiness at the New York Times. There's a Times Opens blog post that is going live. You'll find the link in the show notes. And the New York Times is also hiring, so it's never been a better time to work for them. So check out their open roles, also linked in our description. And you can also you know, support the New York Times by subscribing to the news. And with that, we do have two final questions that we ask everyone who's been on the show. Are you all ready? we are.
0: Yeah, sure. Go for it. (laughs) Okay.
1: What is one thing you wish you would have known sooner about hypercare?
3: Hypercare requires sound maintenance and communications. When you're leading an org through hypercare, especially over an extended period of time, don't assume that folks always know what to do inherently, no matter how many times you've repeated it. You need to have a plan for everything and then have a plan for those plans just in case they go wrong, and then continue to communicate those plans via every forum possible. Repetition is your friend here, and you need to communicate transparently at all times when engaging in hypercare.
1: Awesome. And is there anything you're glad that we did not ask you about?
2: Thank you for not asking what went wrong, because almost always something does go wrong, and it's about how you manage the situation. Not about what failed. The circumstances are the bare bones of eventual retrospectives. Thank you for that. No
1: problem. Thank you all again, Vanessa, Megan and Alexandra, for joining us today. And this is Quintessence wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at PageItToLimit.com, and you can reach us on Twitter at PageItToLimit using the number two. That's Limit with the number two. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us, and remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.